Welcome to The Catalyst, where we explore creative ideas to spark innovation in an unhealthy healthcare system. I'm your host, Dr. Lara Salyer, a physician and mom of three who is reimagining the way I practice medicine after suffering and overcoming burnout. Join me as I teach you how to optimize flow and catalyze your own revolution in healing. Tune in for candid conversations with leading experts in conventional and holistic healthcare who dare to believe a better future is possible for all of us. Life is made of teeny catalytic moments of immense impact. When strung together, the transformation is magical. Join us and let's color outside the lines. Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. In this episode, you're going to meet Dr. Paul Deschant. He's a senior advisor to C-level executives on reducing physician burnout while building the bottom line. We're going to talk about the six drivers of burnout. We're going to talk about the lesson that we can learn in the pandemic, how you can build your own team huddle to help alleviate burnout. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. And you should know he knows his stuff. He's a CEO of the Sutter Gould Medical Foundation. He's led a transformation that improved physician satisfaction from the 45th to the 87th percentile on AMGA's Provider Satisfaction Survey. And he achieved recognition for the group as the highest performing among 170 medical groups across the state of California, two years in a row. He co-authored a book, Preventing Physician Burnout, Curing the Chaos and Returning Joy to the Practice of Medicine. He speaks internationally and blogs regularly at pauldeschampmd.com. He received his MD from Oregon Health Services University, his MBA from the University of Colorado, Denver. His career includes 25 years practicing as a family physician in multiple settings, 30 years of medical group management, and eight years as subject matter expert on clinician burnout. You don't want to miss this interview. Dr. Paul really talks deep about those drivers of burnout, about cognitive load. We talk about the neuroscience of flow. We talk about lean. Don't worry. Don't feel triggered by the word lean. We talk about huddles and we talk about the lesson in the pandemic. And I truly believe after listening to this interview, you might think about burnout a little differently. I am so thrilled to have Dr. Paul Deschant here. I first met him in the Healthcare Burnout Symposium in 2022 in San Francisco, right when the world was opening up and being daring after the pandemic. And like many have heard before in some of my previous episodes, it was an enlightening symposium. I got to hear Dr. Paul speak, and he's full of knowledge and expertise, multiple decades of experience in healthcare as both physician and leading change in healthcare. But what was most pivotal is the honesty uh, with which he spoke and laying out guidelines on how we can help change our healthcare that's crumbling among us and underneath us. So thank you again, Paul, for joining us and welcome. Thank you, Laura. This is, I'm excited to be here and I just appreciate so much what you're doing in this whole field. Well, burnout, I think, touches all of us. I would be fair to say that Burnout is not if it happens, I think it does happen. I think that we all skirt the edges of burnout and it's whether we can learn to recognize the signs and to hopefully be a part of the solution can determine how we're going to fare. So in your own words, I would love to hear your take on the causes of burnout in our healthcare. Sure, sure. And, you know, starting with that fact that we always have to go back to remember that the problem with burnout is the workplace not the worker. It is not a lack of personal resilience. We tend to think about that about ourselves. If only we were stronger, we could handle this, we'd be fine. And in fact, 
what we found is the job has truly become undoable. You know, the burnout, the technical manifestations of burnout, which we do experience our exhaustion, and we've given everything we've got to give. There's nothing left. It's all out there on the field. When we get to that point, then we start to protect ourselves from our, from our patients, from our organizations. That's where that depersonalization or cynicism comes in. And you put those two together, exhausted and disconnected, and you start to wonder if you're making a difference at all, that sense of inefficacy, which I really think is the saddest of the three, because it happens in, in a situation where a patient and a physician are together in a room, and the patient is there feeling wonderful value from that doctor, and the doctor's sitting there, and she's thinking, am I making any difference whatsoever? Right. And the very same interaction. Right. So, you know, that's, those are the manifestations. What's driving all that? You know, one of my great uh, fortunes is I live in the Bay Area where uh, Christina Maslach, who created the Maslach Burnout Inventory and did all the seminal research on burnout lives. And I've gotten to know her. And she describes six drivers of burnout, or actually in her most recent book, The Burnout Challenge, she describes these now as job person mismatches. Uh, but, and I think they're both. It's the mismatch that then drives these manifestations of burnout. But that first one is work overload. And when we're overloaded, that's, she's done research that demonstrates that that drives the exhaustion. And so, and there's so much opportunity we have to address that. And most people think that's what burnout is. I'm overloaded, I'm exhausted, I'm burned out. You know, there's so many ways we know that we're doing things that are not of value. We spend probably two thirds of our time on administrivia or other things that aren't really pertinent to the things that truly give us professional fulfillment. You know, we get fulfillment from connecting to our patients where they share with us their hopes and dreams. We do procedures that relieve suffering and save lives. We mentor young people preparing to become our colleagues. And, and we do research and innovation to make healthcare better. When we're spending our time doing that, it's hard to burn out even if you're working really hard. But when we spend only a third of our time doing those things and two thirds of our time on this other stuff, the opportunity to redesign work so that we can eliminate uh, some of the, at least um, you know, as much of that as possible. I, I like to talk now about flipping that ratio so that we could spend two thirds of our time on meaningful work and only one third of our time on administrative. And just imagine what that would release in terms of potential. Most healthcare organizations, while they work on continuous improvement, they don't really go all in on doing, investing as much as they could, despite the fact that there's a huge potential return on investment for doing that. So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that's the first, that's, that's most people think it's exhaustion and from overload and don't invest enough in redesigning. Because when we do the redesign, then we can get rid of the pajama time. We can focus more effectively on our patients when we're in the office as well. Yes. What I loved about your knowledge base and speaking and meeting Dr. Maslock and Dr. Shanafelt during that conference is that it's like the Mr. Rogers analogy. When you see traumatic events and crises happening, you look for the helpers. And there's a lot of people helping in this burnout epidemic. There's a lot of people trying and doing good work. And you're identifying these key areas that, you know, a lot of physicians feel so isolated and so alone that they're the only ones suffering. And that is so not true. We are in a, a, just a, a new time that has never been asked before of us to 
to, it's almost like being a pilot that flies the plane, serves the drinks, seats the people, does all the tasks. You know, as a physician, you are less allowed to offload tasks because everything is apparently important. Like you said, we're, we're having to do a lot of these low volume or high volume, low value tasks that's busy work. And I feel like this is the dark ages. And I do believe with AI and some of the great tech advances, we are going to see a dawn where it gets fun again because physicians are allowed to have that meaningful, you know, eye gaze with their patients and yeah. allowed to, you know, yeah. enjoy helping. I, I don't know if you agree, but I really think I'm hopeful about the future. I think from the potential, from the opportunity of technology that's out there, and as people are becoming more and more aware of the, uh, the potential to also truly redesign in new ways, whether you call it uh, design thinking or innovation or lean, they all get to the heart of the, of the same approach, which is recognizing that the people who are doing the work act and are suffering from that dysfunction, they know what's wrong. They have great ideas to make it better. They just don't rarely get the opportunity. Oftentimes some expert comes in and tells them they're going to do something this way or that way, and that'll save them the time. But they never bothered to ask the people who are actually doing the work. And more and more, I think leaders are starting to understand, or at least improvement people are starting to understand. You, you don't have to come in with the ideas. You, you just have to create the environment uh, and give people the space to actually uh, discuss and get to the root cause of the problems, test innovations, and then implement the ones that are working. Oh, and, that's brilliant. Yes. You're yeah. basically saying have an environment of psychological safety and allow people yeah. to come forward yeah. with those ideas. And that was another point in, in the symposium. I remember learning that key uh, stat about if you increase physician leadership skills, their self-efficacy increases, their burnout decreases, you know, and it's amazing mm -hmm. that, you know, just simple things like this can help kind of bolster up the bottom line so that people can come in. How do you work with healthcare organizations to, to figure out their key points that they need help with? Yeah, well, so this can, <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the challenge, um, because as much as we can be optimistic about all the technology that's changing and all of that stuff, and I have to confess, back when Epic, you know, when EHRs first became a thing, I mean, I've been around for a long time, and in, you know, early 2000s, I was involved, in, I was at Geisinger when we introduced Epic, um, and I was very excited about it, I was a real advocate. But it has, you know, the way that it got introduced, which was just essentially taking like this, this wonderful software and plunking it right on top yep. of a paper process, you know, did nothing to make things more effective. So hopefully we'll do it differently this time. I think the area that I'm least optimistic about, but there's potential. And in fact, the people who understand this and, and take advantage of it will be the ones who win in the long run, is the fact that so many leaders still don't really understand or haven't seen it work to engage properly with the physicians uh, and the nurses. The other five drivers of burnout are the things that drive cynicism. And those all have to do with how we lead and manage. And this is where I think we see so much of the problem is those drivers include a, a lack of control. You know, particularly as doctors, autonomy is a big deal to us. It should be. We give up so much of our early young lives to train so we have the skills and knowledge to take control when we need to. In fact, it's one of those intangible rewards we look for when we join the mm -hmm. profession. And that second, third driver is insufficient reward. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's also collegiality and, um, you know, doctors and nurses are fun to hang with. But we're seeing such breakdown in community because we've all been separated from each other. 
Mm-hmm. And that um, is the fourth driver of burnout, breakdown of community. The fifth is absence of fairness. When, you know, when someone in a leadership role in particular doesn't treat you fairly, you know, there's favoritism happening for any number of reasons, whether it's a personal relationship or issues around diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, or just society's changed. You know, the, the, con- <laughs> the agreement we thought we were making with society when we decided up to become physicians, that doesn't yeah. really exist anymore. It's like, this, this, not, this, this is not what I signed up for. It doesn't feel fair. And then the final uh, driver is, um, is values conflicts. If my values don't align with the values of the organization I'm working with, and we see that so many, you know, with more and more business and for-profit work coming into healthcare, private equity coming in, people focused on uh, really just that financial gain, return on investment, you know, value for shareholders. If that, if the approach isn't well thought out, it actually can, that's, we are seeing damage from that. And also through the pandemic, so many people had to do things that actually violated their own personal values. They really didn't have a choice. There was not adequate PPE. There were not adequate supplies or capacity to care for all the patients properly. So that's a whole level of damage that's happened to folks as well. But that whole issue of the things that drive cynicism, control, reward, community fairness and values, those, those have so much to do with how you lead. And so many of us are leaders, whether you're leading a group as small as two or three of a teamlet that supports you in your office, or you're leading a group of, you know, two or 300 physicians or 20 or 30,000 employees across the health system, how you lead makes such a difference. And that there's, a, I can talk about that for a while as well. Yes, that it's such an important part just by being a physician, going through all that training. I mean, that's a lot of grit and resilience that you know, in the old days, that's what they they would have us, you know, get shoved down our throat is going to another resiliency workshop to improve burnout. Yeah. And, and like you said, it isn't resiliency. We don't have a lack of resiliency. I think it's the opposite. We're, we're one of the most resilient professions because of all the obstacles you have to overcome. And when the system is so broken, it can feel very sad and hopeless to physicians, especially that lack of autonomy that you had mentioned. I think that's the Mm -hmm. number one thing I hear is, you know, we're like little inner toddlers. We have worked so hard and delayed our gratification so long that the simple act of saying, can I have longer appointment times or can I have these afternoons off for, you know, there's minimal control. And so when you look at, you know, foreshadowing, what do you think is going to be the biggest kind of catalyst moment that might change our healthcare? Or do you see it as a lot of little puzzle pieces that are going to be put in? You know, it's so big and complex. I don't think there's going to be one big catalyst moment because um, it varies by, you know, by city, by whether you're in academics or private practice or, you know, not-for-profit versus profit. So it's probably not going to be one big catalytic thing. I think the culture, one of the conceptual culture changes I hope I see is um, a realization that physicians and, you know, again, all clinicians are knowledge workers. And Peter Drucker, famous management consultant, described knowledge workers as people who think for a living. They innovate all day long. And when, when you step back for just even a minute, you realize every single patient may have come from, you know, is dealing with a similar set of clinical conditions, but they all come from a different mindset. You have to innovate with each patient you take care of in order to reach them effectively. And we know as the knowledge worker also knows more about the work they're doing than the person who's managing them. 
And for, you know, even I, I was running a 300 physician group for a while. I didn't know more about neurosurgery than the neurosurgeon or obstetrics than the OB doc. So, uh, you know, it's, you can't, and, and, but as a family physician, when I was practicing for 25 years, I wanted the autonomy to fix things that I knew were wrong in my office. When I became the CEO of a 300 physician group, the thought of 300 doctors all independently, autonomously deciding what they were going to do to fix their problems scared me. I thought we'd fall apart from entropy. And it's very tempting. And that's why I think most people, as they get high in these levels of leadership, and they're facing huge demands to perform, uh, not just financially, but on quality, patient experience, all these things, the temptation to become top-down command and control management is very strong. And yet we know it doesn't work with physicians. You know, all it does is breed resentment and make things worse. So we have to find that way to both empower people so they can create the practice that they love while aligning everyone around success for the overall enterprise. And there are ways to do that. And the leaders who really understand this and start to implement it are the ones that are going to create organizations that will withstand whatever changes are to come. I remember back in, in 2010, when I had taken over as the CEO of this group, I, was, I would tell the, the doctors, oh, I think the next five years we're going to see more change than we'll ever, we've ever seen before and we'll ever see again. <laughs> you know? And now you look back at that, oh, wait a minute, 2015 to 2020, things changed a lot. 2020, geez, things are changing even faster. It's the change rate is never going to decelerate, but the ability to adapt to change is the key. I mean, that's what Darwin was, right? Yes. If you could, you know, it doesn't matter in the animal kingdom how strong you were, how fast you were, how smart you were, didn't matter what your market share was or your balance sheet. What matters is your ability to adapt to change. And the organizations have to have that same ability. And that's Absolutely. when we can build that into the way we all collectively work together. And you can do this at a, in your own office. If you just have two or three people that you work closely with, you can do that work, a certainly significant portion of it, right in that local area, as Absolutely. well as spread it. You know, if you have broader authority, you can help build it more broadly. Yes, I think you touched on a few key things that I want to kind of underscore. The idea that Physicians are knowledge workers, and that's mm -hmm. a lot of what we discuss in the neuroscience of flow when we're training other practitioners to sequence flow in their day. And that's the, the yeah. feeling of ease and when your skills match that challenge at hand. And that's what doctors love about medicine is there are no two patients alike. We kind of like that. It's like surfing a tide. You don't want it to be too boring. You don't want it too stressful. You want that middle where it's yeah. fascinating and you're really engaged and learning every day. However, because we're knowledge workers, all of our brains are so different and inviting healthcare to think outside the box or color outside the lines and maybe sequencing different schedules for people's chronotypes or allowing out of the box thinking for physicians to take those brain breaks like sabbaticals or you know other other ways that we can invite more creativity and innovation in our autonomy because I really believe that knowledge working is is enjoyable when it's on your own terms. And when we're forced into a certain kind of regimented schedule that may not work for our brains, it can be really taxing. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. And yeah, that's, you know, the idea of, I mean, it's happened probably maybe to everybody on this who's listening here. Somebody comes to you and says, 
well, you've, your appointments have been 20 minutes long, but now we're going to make them 15 because we need more productivity. It's like, you can't do that. It's not, it, it does not work uh, because what we're, we're being treated as though we're automatons on a production line. And there's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. That's right. one of the things, you know, I'm a real advocate of lean and most people, many people react negatively when I say that. Because they think about your oh this is what it means to be on a production line. Somebody comes and tells you you got to work faster. You know that that horrible term. Just work smarter, not harder. Like, well, you got to help me. I, I've got great ideas, but you won't let me have those great ideas. Use, use those smart ideas I've got, and then you're telling me to work not harder. But it's, it's just yes. I think that word is, is triggering. Lean is causing PTSD in a lot of us. But I see what you're saying is working lean doesn't necessarily mean faster or or it just means taking out the fluff that isn't what you are meant to be doing and being efficient in your own tools and skill set that you're applying and then yeah. that's what we need well and in fact the first when we do lean properly the first rule uh, the first principle of lean is respect for people the second principle is continuous improvement but you can't do that well if you don't respect people you know i got started at toyota after world war ii because they literally, the only resource they had was people. They lost all, you know, they, they wiped out all of the underpinnings of their economy. And they needed to rely on the resourcefulness of their people and empower their people to, to make things work well. Because they just, they had no natural material, uh, raw, raw materials, natural resources were thin. They had to just count on their people. And now too many, too often, you know, lean's been considered to be some expert coming in telling you to do things a certain way. The expert comes in and helps the people who do the work to identify the problems and fix the problems. That's oh. that's what's done right. I love that. Yeah. I wish we could have more of that personality uh, testing in a way, so we could match jobs with our physician brains. And and you kind of, oh, inter- yeah. you know, yeah. like you, you sort of alluded to it in the beginning of our interview when you were talking about just job mismatch. And a lot of us go yeah. into medicine kind of like a stem cell. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to differentiate <laughs> into. And, and you know, we kind of try out different rotations and we find stuff that feels good and fits, but we're not always certain. Some of us are, but I loved family practice because it was a little bit of everything. And that's what yeah. I felt comfortable with. And sometimes people end up in careers that just might be a little bit of a mismatch or it's not the career, but it's the environment. Maybe they yeah. want a rural clinic as opposed to urban. And so I really hope that if you're listening and you're skirting the idea that you might be burned out, not to throw out the career completely. It could simply be an environment, the culture you're sitting in and going into a different fish tank. You might be a happier ENT or orthopedic surgeon or family practice doctor just by looking at those metrics there. Yeah, I think that's where people, you know, personal coaching for people who are burned out to really be able to think through all that is really important. That's not something that I do, but I think you do that, right? Yeah. And others. You know, yeah, there's a lot of physician do. coaches. I love yeah. that. And that's, yeah. I think, important. <laughs> yeah, well, it is important when you're that 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 state where you're that burned out in order to be able to help have someone help you think through it. It's kind of like, you know, with Lean, a coach who helps a team think through how to redesign isn't coming in with a solution. They're helping people think through it. That's what you do as a coach for a burned out physician as well. You don't have their solution for them, but you sure help them think through it in a way they could not do otherwise. Yes. And it's so valuable. And if you're going to consider something as big as changing a career, moving to a different organization or a different location, really being able to think through it clearly is, is, 
very important before you make the move. It's a really valuable service that uh, people who are coaching burnout physicians provide. I'm a physician who survived burnout by prescribing my own creativity, and it fascinated me to learn about the neuroscience of flow. Now I teach others how to apply the neuroscience of flow so they redesign their work-life masterpiece in a world where burnout will always exist. I've put my top favorite activities in a catalyst kit. It's only $29, and you're going to learn all of the following. You're going to excavate your core values, define your mission and purpose, envision future goals, understand your ideal patient target, develop a 30-second elevator pitch. You'll identify your peak performance team, craft your own unique manifesto, make better, quicker, and efficient decisions. You'll understand the neuroscience of flow and learn how to remove those flow disruptors and set those flow enhancers in your day. You'll also get access to a group visit formula as well as how to write SOPs and a membership readiness checklist. No matter if you're a functional or integrative physician or you're a curious medical student, this Catalyst Kit is going to give you that appetizer sampler of activities that will stimulate innovation and creativity in your own day. So head to drlarasalier.com forward slash links and get the Catalyst Kit today. Again, if you're listening, there are so many physician coaches out there. In fact, I hope that one day medical schools and residencies would just employ physician coaches as part of a standard of care because mm -hmm. in many industries in business in other industries there's a lot of uh, apprenticeships and mentoring that happens and in in physician training you have a little bit of that but they're so busy you don't really formally get a mentor you don't get assigned somebody you just kind of get let into your job and then you hope you sink or swim and so it'd be nice to have this you know a uh, league of people that can help. A lot of hospitals are being remodeled with no physician lounges, no offices. And this is kind of siloing us even further. So I think your idea of, you know, empowering us to look for the right job match and, and help each other out would be key. Oh, yeah. And that coaching is vital to do that. You know, another thing I like to think about with coaching is you look at the best people in any sport, and they all have coaches. Tom Brady's had a, you know, whether you like or, or don't, Tom Brady or uh, Steph Curry or you name the, you know, right. type, you name the person who's good at what they do, world class at what they do. They all have coaches. And as physicians, we get intense coaching up until the moment we finish our training. And then you're kind of cast out never again. Yes. It's so bizarre. It is and bizarre. I remember, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I remember vividly coming to my first job and then asking a few months in, can I ask for a chart audit? I would love to see, am I, am I efficient? Yeah. Am I, am I on? I mean, I've been used to having a, you know, residency and I just was curious, could I be faster at typing? Is there something else I could do? And there was it was met with this confused look of we don't do that you don't get anything like that and yeah. and I just think that's kind of audacious that we don't offer that kind of help. Yeah, I think it's one of the sort of cultural traditions that medicine's had for a long time. We, you know, we're supposed to be autonomous and be able to do whatever we want, and it worked. That worked fifty years ago, but it doesn't work now. And yeah, so it is. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. And there are things that happen. One of, the, one of the things we worked hard to do was implement uh, team care and have, uh, so a physician would have a whole team around them, a medical assistant, RN, et cetera, 
So when they walk in a room, the patient's already been prepped fully with, you know, basic history obtained, all the past social families, you know, if they need to be prepared for an exam, they're all set up. And then in that MA would even stay in the room and act as a scribe. And in some cases, in most of the cases, it's great that the patients have a wonderful experience. The doc can sit down, look that patient in the eye. And instead of, instead of, you know, I've had people say, oh, yeah, you know, I used to, you used to look, the patient would say to me, you used to look me in the eye. Now you look me in the ear because I'm yeah. busy taking away. So I'm not even facing them directly uh, or worse, you know, <laughs> or worse, your face, their, your backs to them. But one of the things that came out, which was really instructive, was uh, I had one physician I'd hired who seemed golden on paper. Turned out she was not the most appropriate person inside the privacy of an exam room. And even with an MA in the room, that still came out. And the MA came to me and said, I'm a little concerned about this. Can you help me figure it out? And, and we found, you know, there were issues. And so often that stuff gets missed. And that's the extreme case. But just to help, help me know, am I really doing it right or not? One of the reasons I really intensive, intentionally joined a group rather than tried to go solo when I started into practice in the mid-80s, so I could have, was I wanted that group support. I didn't, I didn't want to risk my skills slipping away and, you know, not being current and not doing state-of-the-art care. Yes, I get so excited because you're you're touching on so many things. The soft skills of physicians. We've I've joked that we all should go through charm school, you know, because yeah. I mean we're so used to learning medicine that sometimes we come out a little dusty on our people skills. And uh-huh. I know medical schools are trying to infuse that earlier and earlier. But let's just be honest, we're all human and and we all have different quirks and different personality strengths and weaknesses. And these soft skills are really what can be tough. My husband runs a residency program here for family practice, and he's been doing this for eight years. He's been the director. And that is really the hardest part is the soft skills. It's really not the knowledge. You can train up knowledge. You You can tell someone that you might need to read more on hemochromatosis or whatever. But when it comes to soft skills, it's hard to spot. And and when you don't have that team effort. I love your idea of having the MA, the scribe. And, and it's not because, you know, we're trying to be hyper productive, but it's just really good checks and balances to make sure the patient feels seen, the doctor's feeling like they're enjoying what they're doing. And it helps give kind of a look at the soft skills. Yeah. Yeah, it does. The more important part, actually, actually I kind of diverted there into the only piece of that guy, but the more important part is as a physician, you can walk in the room and focus on the patient. And, you know, you don't have to worry, have all the, you know, healthcare maintenance items been taken care of. Well, somebody's already checked that. And if I need to know, they've probably penned it in order and I can sign it. But I don't have to spend too much of my time thinking about that. I can think about who's this person in front of me? How do I connect to them person to person? That's really, that's the heart of what it's all about. And it's hard to get there. I love it that that your husband's a residency director and talk about the soft skills. Uh, I'll never forget in my residency, our director, he, we would, you know, we'd get, we'd be on call at night, we'd get all these cases in, and then we'd work them up. And we were bound and determined that he was, we were not going to let anything slip. Uh, he would, he couldn't find something that we hadn't already identified that night, you know, and he'd come in and we'd be doing rounds that morning and I'd present the case. And then he'd go and sit down on the side of the bed of the patient's bed and hold their hand and start talking to them. And damn, if he didn't almost every time come out with some amazing thing that we had just completely missed because he really, he modeled yes. connecting deeply to the patient. And again, that's something that 
as, as the world's changed over the last 40 years, it's not so easy to do, oh. but easy we can make it happen. That is a great story because I think all of us, I'm Gen X, so I remember a time before Epic and before EMR. I remember paper charts. I remember, you know, scribbling and trying to decipher my attendings' handwriting and yeah. drawings and, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, but those attendings, I remember the, the amount of stories they had and the neat way that they could connect with people. And being a DO, we learned manipulation. So I remember some of our, our really old attendings that were like Yoda and they could put their hand on someone's toe and say, your parents got divorced when you were six, you know, and you're like, how do you know this? Um, and so I know that they still exist, but it's just so sad that because of the way our healthcare has changed, it's making these stories less and less able to manifest because yeah. patients lose that physician. They get put on a different panel. Um, they don't even know who their primary is. They're just sort of assigned. But I feel like there were some gifts in the pandemic. And I think you alluded to that. Like, what do you think helped change healthcare or maybe took off the veil in this pandemic that made us realize that we can adapt? Is there anything that you would say you found in the pandemic as a, as a gift, as a possible help for burnout? You know, I think actually early, well, a couple of things. One is early in the pandemic, as much as people were literally in, in an existential threat environment, life-threatening environment, there was also a decrease and there was a tremendous overwork. There was a decrease in burnout because there was such a strong sense of being mission driven. And there was such a small, strong sense of coll uh, collegiality and collaboration. And those are, you know, and, and there was a lot of respect for clinicians by the general public. And as things evolved, you know, a lot of that has gone, gone away or even gone negative, you know, and so there's been that. I think the, the biggest lesson I saw during the pandemic that, and I think this gets back to this idea of, you know, do you have your organization structured in a way that it honors knowledge workers and it's going to be able to adapt quickly in the long run is what is the adaptation of command centers that met two or three times a day because the, the threat was so significant. Things were changing so rapidly. And, you know, either the threats were on the front line and people didn't know what to do, or somebody on a, in one location in the hospital had come up with a great solution. And in order to be able to spread that quickly to everybody else, the, the, these command centers where information rapidly went up to the top and rapidly got disseminated back out across the organization became invaluable for doing that. That same idea has now essentially in many organizations been abandoned. So that, that, that ability to rapidly identify, escalate, solve, and distribute, uh, you know, identify the problems and distribute the solutions. I, I wonder why we, we, we let that slide. You know, yeah. we used to think you can't change quickly in healthcare. It's too much regulation. There's too much risk. Well, we disproved that completely. Yes. And, look at, yeah. Right. And, um, and we actually can communicate more. But the organizations, that, that's actually a basic, again, in a lean organization with a good lean culture that respects people, the communication from the front line to the senior leaders and back out to the front line again is a vital part of it that really makes it work. And the organizations that, that honor that, that realize, you know, is, is there a crisis these days when we're facing 20% staff shortages? You know, is there a crisis when healthcare organizations are working in negative margins? They're losing money every year. It's not sustainable to do long term. Are those crises? And if so, should we be responding to them the same way we responded to the infection crisis of the pandemic? And 
those places that figure that out and put that into place will be the ones that do well. And again, you can scale this. You can be, if, if your whole organization is not doing this, you can certainly bring your team on your, you know, in, in your um, unit or in your clinic together once a day for a huddle that does these things, that recognize, you know, acknowledges people for something great they did the day before, prepares for the day looking at capacity versus demand. What's the schedule or census look like compared to our staffing, our supplies, and our equipment? Usually we don't have enough capacity to meet that demand, but we can make contingencies so it's not, so it's much easier to deal with. Um, how are we doing in terms of the things that are important to have, you know, the, the performance metrics that honor our values, patient safety, uh, quality, patient experience, being financially responsible as we can, honoring the workers that are doing the job, um, tracking those. And if we're on track, great. If we're not, then those are problems to address. And, or did something go wrong the day before that you really don't want to have go wrong again? And it can be something really small, like a supply's not where it needs to be, or the printer's out of paper or something like that. Those little pebbles in your shoe that make your day miserable. Yes. And, you know, if, if the team comes together, recognizes that, works on a solution and puts that into place, eventually all those little pebbles can get cleared out and it can make the day a lot easier to, to get through. Absolutely. That makes such sense because you're, you're talking about anchoring deep into values, which is mission driven. And that's how we can help prevent or work through burnout. When you feel attached to that mission, you're talking about highlighting little pitfalls or goals or ways you could quickly adapt. That's feedback. And our, our brain loves feedback because then we can improve. And then you're activating that energy of how can we, you know, show gratitude? How can we help each other and make this kind of an upward spiral um, success? And that's, that's beautiful. It's, it's part of the, what I call the aha method, anchor, highlight, activate. It's what I teach. It's how how I, I try to explain that burnout can have a retro engineered equation. And when you anchor in those values, you highlight opportunities to change and you activate that energy. Um, it can help on that mic- microscopic level that you talk about. And thank you so much for the work you're doing. I know you've written a book, uh, Preventing Physician Burnout, Curing the Chaos and Returning Joy to the Practice of Medicine. Where can we purchase that book? Oh, it's on Amazon. Um, awesome. So that's probably the best place to get it. And it's Kindle. Uh, we don't have audio yet, but it's Kindle and it's a, it's a paperback. <laughs> Beautiful. And if, if any of the organizations listening wanted to reach out and ask you for speak, I know you're an international speaker, you work with hospitals and other organizations, where can they reach you? Yeah, so I've got a website. They can book with me right through that, book an appointment, or simply email me. My email address is paul at pauldechantmd.com. So yes, yeah, so you can email me or book an appointment on my website. You can just email me directly at that link. Um, find me on LinkedIn and send me a message there. Yes, thank you. Oh, thank yeah. you for thank you for your time and for everybody listening. Thank you so much for being a catalyst in our transformation in healthcare. And it's not you; it's the system that is burned out. So take some wisdom from Dr. Paul Deschant and find him on LinkedIn buy his book. Uh, He is definitely a catalyst in change and keep coloring outside the lines. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Catalyst Podcast. If you would like to learn more about your own personal burnout pattern, head over to drlarasalier.com forward slash catalyst. At the top of the page, it will ask you, would you like to have your free restoration plan? Yes. What this is, is a 10 question quiz that will identify which of the pillars of burnout that you need help with first. Anchor, highlight, activate. 
and you will then get a delivery of your own customized restoration plan to your inbox. This will be a collection of my favorite articles, books, videos, templates that I've used that can help you excavate and restore yourself to a work-life masterpiece that you deserve. Head to drlarasalier.com forward slash catalyst and keep coloring outside the lines.